Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Mike Kennedy to the show. In his current role, Mike serves as the Vice President of Technology Enablement and Strategy at CDW, where he's responsible for delivery and execution across the technology organization. Prior to CDW, Mike has held leadership roles at Here Technologies and the Marketing Store. He holds a bachelor's degree from the United States Military Academy at West Point and an MBA from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, Shelley. Thanks for having me. Mike, if you don't mind, please share a little bit with our listeners about your role at CDW. Sure. So I joined CDW just over a year ago. In my current role, my task is really to help the company with its technology transformation, as well as manage the portfolio of programs that we're using to deliver those transformation objectives. My team uh, spans multiple disciplines. Uh, We are focused primarily today on transformation office, as well as program management office. And in that, we try and span across agile ways of working, vendor management, change in communication, and then value delivery and portfolio management. That's pretty cool. So you're looking at the transformation as an organization to be more agile, to be, because I think when people bring up the term digital transformation, they think just really on that consumer side of it, right? And not so much transforming internally, which is absolutely critical to have a successful digital transformation. So What is it you think is going to be necessary for you to be successful with that effort? Yeah, so we we actually took a lot of time in thinking about this. And what we came up with is there's three pillars you can't get away from. It's the people, it's the process, and it's the technology. And really, you can't change any one of those without addressing the other two. So the three legs of the stool, if you will. And in that, we are wholeheartedly focused on all three. We've gone through the past year really focused on our people and our process and are now tackling the technology aspect of it, right? How do you start to bring more SaaS solutions to bear? How do you start to transition to the cloud? How do you start to now leverage these processes in ways that help make it more efficient, as well as take some of the administrative and uh, redundant burden off of our people so that they can be more productive and can help think more critically? But Mike, that's got to be wrong. If it's it's digital transformation, we got to start with technology and just jam it down people's throats. That's what everybody does. Yeah, that's a that's an approach. Um, you know, I would say what we've said is, look, anytime you've got engineers involved, the the soft, be nice, be nice. <laughs> I, I include myself among them, right? I know, I know. So it is not our strong suit. It is not where people naturally go. We all want to talk about the new SaaS solution. We all want to talk about the new coding language and the new cloud architecture. That's cool, right? That's what gets people excited and gets them in, in every morning. Yeah, The people part is where it's won or lost, though. And, and I think a lot of people have seen this, right? You can deploy the best technology in the world, the most cutting edge solution. But if you haven't brought the people along, it's doomed to fail. And so, you know, we have spent a lot of time and a lot of effort putting in place more around change management and communications to help support this transformation than just going at technology. Because we know we know how to do technology. That's not the question. It's can we bring the people along for the journey? 
when we spoke before, that's what really impressed me is that awareness and, and what you're doing. And I do think it's so often people try to rub technology on the way things are currently and hoping that somehow like a Chia pet, that's going to stick. But Mike, it, it, the people stuff, you know, uh, how do you do it? Because that is the really hard stuff. And it's hard to approach from an engineering standpoint of, so what are you guys doing to enable that? Yeah. So I think we've got a couple things and, and you know, it's somewhat circumstantial and I'm sure others uh, who are listening are in similar situations. It's hard to find talent these days, right? We're all competing on a national, if not global market basis. And it's becoming tougher to find that talent because they've been gobbled up during the COVID years and they're just not available. There's a huge demand gap that hasn't been filled. And so what we identified early is we need to retain as many people as we possibly can during this transformation. So for that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to move to more SaaS solutions, right? And uh, our, our CTO, uh, Sanjay Sood, made the comment that we're trying to provide the Lego bricks for the organization. And I think that's a good analogy. In putting those together, we then retrain our teams off of some of the more customized solutions that have been built up over the past you know, couple decades to make sure that they're ready to support us in this new SaaS world. They receive the training, they receive the qualifications and certifications, they have time to help us implement and they're a part of the implementation. So it's not something being done to our teams, right? It's something we're all partnering in and trying to move together through. And honestly, that has been the, the key to the success so far is engaging a lot of the stakeholders early, making them part of the solution and making sure we're training them and giving them the tools so they can be just as successful in the future as they are today. Yeah. And I think one of the other concepts you shared was that give sharing that vision, right? Like, where are we going? Right. And then actually, you know, one of the things I, I with your background in the military, one of the things I think the military does a fantastic job is focusing on what is the vision? What is the intent? And then here are the tactics we believe will create those outcomes. Right. And your focus on metrics and what I call like scoreboard, right. Do we know if we're winning? So I really think that, you know, the vision component is a big part of that transformation. So and I know that's what you guys are doing. So share, share what, what you're doing around creating that clarity for everybody in the organization. Sure. Yeah. We went remote and again, probably like many people listening, right? We went uh, into a virtual environment overnight. And that was from a team who was used to being in the office together. So to help consolidate some of the approaches and make sure people understand what they're being asked to do, we've implemented a couple of things. So one is we've really doubled down on the agile methodology. So looking at safe agile, how do you work asynchronously? How do you make sure teams are connected in a way that doesn't require them to be on meetings all day long, but rather allow them to do their work because they understand what's being asked and why it's being asked. So at the highest level, though, it starts with strategy. And for us, we try and capture our strategy in a document that uh, we refer to as the VSEM. And it's an acronym that stands for the vision, the strategy, execution objectives, and then the metrics. And typically what you do is you set your strategy and mission holistically, and then you identify three to four of those sub-strategies that you're going to focus on within a 12 to 18 month period. Those then have three to five kind of objectives with three to five metrics. So the idea is anyone in the organization can look at what is the strategy, what is the measures, and what am I being asked to achieve, and ladder up from what they're doing, how that ties into the overall strategy of the organization. This is a growing process, obviously. I wouldn't say that you know we've got it 100% right, 
but we're standing on the, the shoulders of giants in some ways. You know, this is something that uh, we've borrowed from other successful companies. And since we've rolled this out, I've actually heard from other companies, they're doing very similar things. Salesforce uses a similar process. You know, we've borrowed heavily from Cisco in building this in the first place. You know, it's really been a great collaborative experience being able to then take something and tailor it for our org, but then also make sure we're getting feedback from our teams. You know, because the key, you can send as much information as you want, but if it's not received, it doesn't count. So we're constantly following back up with our coworkers, making sure they understand their role, making sure every town hall, we're reiterating those strategies and those objectives, and then giving updates on where we are against our metrics so that we all have this common picture that we're looking at, regardless of the day-to-day tactics. We all can come back to that strategy at the end. I'm just curious, Mike, are there any big surprises or I guess questions that employees have asked that you didn't anticipate? There are the couple questions that tend to pop up are, am I accountable for things even if I don't do it directly, right? And the short answer is yes, right? This is a a team effort, right? This is an individual sport. We're all playing at the same game and trying to drive the company in, in a common direction. So we share common metrics and then they are cascaded down to the individual development plans so that they have individual goals as well. So it becomes a combination. That's tremendous. The concept that I think that has to happen in some of those places, because you touched on it, like the accountability, shared accountability, one person's accountable. That doesn't mean they're the only one who's going to do it, right? right? Is that something you guys are striving for? Is it you know, more of that team of teams, like McChrystal's plan? And it's not so much about the hyper-efficiency of like, this is siloing people, but having more of that cross-training, cross-responsibility. It is. And, and it plays into not only how there are ways of working around Safe Agile, but also the SaaS platforms that we're implementing now, right? Being able to have those platforms enables a lot of that cross-pollination and cross-training because now you're at least on a common data model. You're using a common set of tools. Everyone can, you know, has the opportunity to see things um, and have visibility into what's happening beyond their, their own little vertical. The team of teams, I think that, that obviously speaks to me, right? With my military background, I love that idea. I think we we still have a ways to go to mature to that level. You know, McChrystal's book, you know, highlights some of the efficiencies that come with that, but also the struggles it, it takes to actually get there. Mm-hmm. He had the enviable position of being a, a commanding general in the field, which, you know, there's there's not many people that get to tell you no in that situation. You know, for us in the business world, I think we've got to show results. We've got to be able to show the benefits. And that takes a little bit longer, but in the end can be just as valuable. Awesome. So Mike. I know in our previous conversation, we, we talked about big I versus little I, and I, I'd love for you to share with the listeners your, your philosophy around that as well. And if you can work Zoom into it, that would be great. Sure. Happy to. <laughs> no, I think, you know, if it doesn't include Zoom, it's not really an innovation discussion. I agree. 100%. <laughs> the, uh, the big I, little I, I mean, this is what we all struggle with, right? I think we're all waiting for those big I ideas to kind of drop from the sky and hit us on the head. The truth that I've seen, at least in my career, is they tend to be a lot smaller eye innovations that tend to focus on process and more about applying tools in different and innovative ways to solve real problems that coworkers have. And we see this already. You know, we talked about the strategy alignment and making sure people understand why they're doing things and the outcome we're trying to drive. That actually enables them to, to have more of these small eye innovations because now they understand what is trying to be achieved. And they can recommend, right? Hey, look, I've got a robotic process automation opportunity here. If you can bring this new tool to bear, I can shave off three days 
right off of this very manual process. That's a great innovation. Let's talk about that. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, inventing the iPod, right? Those are great. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, we'd love to see them. But at the end of the day, those small eye innovations can actually pay for themselves many more times over when identified, you know, close to who's actually doing the work and then, you know, attacked in terms of trying to get it delivered quickly. I always kind of wonder, is there big eye without little eye? Right. Like I think people like they hunt for the big answers, but like you need to do the little eye to have that breakthrough moment where you go, oh, this is what they want. Yeah. Like the happenstance of like, I don't know if Apple knew that apps were like the thing when they were trying to defeat, you know, Motorola or or Blackberry. Did they know that apps? Because Motorola thought security, right? That Mm. the idea that they had the most secure system was what people wanted. Uh, they were wrong, right? From a generational standpoint, right? Because I see what people hand over on their mobile phones all the time, and you're just like, okay, I guess that's what we do now. Because uh, people from our generation were taught, like, no, you are concerned Microsoft's going to steal all your data, right? And so we always kept them at a very, you know, arm's length. But you know, I, I guess that's my take, and I'm wondering, like, without little I, because I see big I all the time that fails disastrously of like, Hey, we're going to be so different without the concept of it's anchored to something we do better than other people in the past. Right. Like it's gotta be tied to your heritage, right? Like what is it we were is tied to what we will be. And I'm, I'm sure I'm stealing that idea from like Peter Thiel's book zero to one. So. No, I think you're right. The, the core competency, right? Like don't stray too far from what your core competencies are. I, I think that's very true. But I do get the impression, having been in conversations, that a lot of times teams are looking for a big eye to be something out of left field that no one's ever talked about before. And unless it's that kind of you know lightning bolt idea, they're a bit dismissive of the innovation. Mm. And I, I think that's a flaw, right? Yeah. I'm with you. I think sometimes iterative improvements can get you there because you you take a step and you have a different vantage point. And maybe it opens up a new horizon that you didn't see before. Do you think, I mean, are you an, I'm a big advocate of like lean manufacturing and applying a lean philosophy to, to everything of like, how do we just, let's not worry about like making big changes. Let's just worry about getting rid of what's not working, reducing waste, being responsive, right? The, the whole Toyota model. And that's the two manufacturers I think about with big eye and little eye is like BMW, right? They, their greatest, you know, uh, invention they think is their, their manufacturing process. And so does Toyota, right? But Toyota really focuses so heavily on the little eye, right? Of that getting rid of the Muda, right? And like, and they're great at it. They, that's how they build the high quality products. But then like BMW, when they start doing work on like the new electric vehicles, they did everything by hand, right? To your point of like, you can't automate that from the beginning. You wouldn't build a big production line for something that you don't know about, right? That R&D line, right? So you're going to have to figure out how to do it and then figure out how to scale it. And this goes back to kind of the, and again, Agile takes on a bit of a bad nomenclature these days because it's way overused. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but this is kind of the Agile approach, right? You don't have to be a whole production line to prove the concept. You know, our company is doing a hackathon here in in a few weeks and I'm really excited for it. Let's see what people come up with when they're given the time and space to choose. Because to your point, I think we're going to have people kind of swing for the fences 
And I think we're going to have people come up with some little eye innovations on problems that they're seeing day to day. Right. And it'll be fascinating. I'm, I'm really excited about it because I think more companies would benefit from that. You know, let the employees, let the coworkers kind of direct you in this. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think this is a top down. I've got the answer. Let me tell you where the innovation is going to come from. It's got to come bottom up, right? Or at least has to be a conversation, right? It's funny. I just read a random fact the other day that you know WD forty, which we all know what that is. They tried thirty nine times to get the product right, and on the fortieth time, they got it, and they've never made a new product since. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Well, now I'm curious. What's the WD stand for? I don't know. And I've been curious myself. Maybe it's initials. Yeah. No, trial and error, right? And I think we dismiss that a bit. And, you know, we hide, not hide, but I think we we very easily use in conversation, agile, lean, you know, these kind of catchphrases. They're not new concepts, honestly, um, if we're being honest with ourselves, right? I mean, anyone who's a parent like myself, agile is the name of the game, right? Because it's definitely iterative. Yeah, it's iterative. And what worked on uh, for dinner last week is not going to work this week. <laughs> right. But again, we, we have these kind of inherent in how people think and how they act in their day to day lives. And for some reason, we get scared when we try and codify it, right, because it becomes a buzzword. But I think it's really just human nature, right? Yeah. Let's keep improving. How do we make that something that we're all in agreement with? Well, we have a term for it. We call it agile. Right. And that's what we apply. But, you know, when it gets misused, I think is where people lose their faith. When it becomes a hard set of rules or guidelines or obstructions to them actually doing what it was intended to do, that's where people just get disillusioned. Yeah. The dogmatic application of the ceremonies, but not the intent. Right. Exactly. It always seems like the one that they always strip out is the one about actually learning. (laughs) we're going to do a retro what are we going to do with the information we get out of the retro absolutely nothing well that was meaningful luckily we're just moving faster and making the same mistake every week this is fun yeah you know and again everyone's got a learning curve right so but i will tell you that that is something we're definitely focused on and we within our team we've just stood up a lean agile center of excellence or a lace to be focused on that, right? And it's, again, not a bunch of leaders. It's a bunch of thought leaders from within the groups who are now helping direct this. How do we make those retrospectives useful? You're in them. What would make it helpful? How do we not be dogmatic? How do we give people flexibility without losing some of the synergy that allows us to then move people from team to team, right? And keep it standard enough that we get the benefits without applying things in an irrational way. Yeah. You're really giving them the autonomy to be entrepreneurial is what it sounds like. We're, we're trying to push down decision-making, right? And I think if you look at the new ways of working, I mean, we're virtual at best hybrid at times, right? We've got teams all over the country and we're looking internationally at trying to build out additional teams. We have to, you know, you're hiring who you hire because they're very good at what they do. We've got to push down and then give them the, the empowerment and the tools to make that a reality. You know, and I, I think we all saw the news about, you know, companies looking at bringing their people back in the office and mandating certain days in the office. I'm curious to see how that plays out long term. I, I think that's going to backfire because to me, what you're saying is you don't trust them. You don't trust them to operate independently. You don't trust them to make decisions in the right way when the time is theirs to use. And I think that's a mistake. I think employees, especially today, have the option. And when given the choice, they're going to look for the ability to manage their own time in their own way. I fundamentally agree with you. I also think there are, right, 
we live in a very specific place of technology where we get to build software and we have people who are high performing when left alone for extended periods of time, right? Like as a guy who wrote a lot of code, it took how many hours to get in the zone just to get to that flow state? <laughs> you know what I mean? How many Red Bulls? Yeah. I mean, you just, you couldn't do it for an hour and be useful. You do it for an hour and like, just, you'd just be starting. So from a software standpoint, a technology standpoint, there's definitely some value, significant value in like having your own workspace where there aren't people bugging you, right? Especially with what we do, which is disappear into your computer for eight hours and love what you're doing and beat the hell out of a keyboard, which I miss dramatically. I don't know if you're picking up on that at this point, but now I have to talk to people. It's really annoying. You, you do it well. You hide it well. I do. I, you, thank you. You know, I usually blame Shelly, as you know. <laughs> One uh, last thought I wanted to touch on that, uh, you know, labor is uh, an issue for everybody. You touched on it before. And, and I, I kind of want to like, you know, what is your, your perspective? I mean, that it's a geographical conundrum, right? It's a global issue. So what are you thinking? What are you going to be doing? I think we're going to look at creative ways to find talent earlier in their careers. So we've got a couple different prongs. So one, you know, we're leveraging third-party partners, partners, you know, like consultant firms uh, onshore and offshore who can help us with some of the key skills that we need. At the same time, I think we've come to terms with we're going to have to grow some talent. And that means investing early and making sure we have a training program and make sure that we've got skills and we've got training materials that will help people advance in the way and in the areas we need. One of the big things that our company has started this year is a historical black college and university program fellowships, trying to identify talent within those universities that we can start bringing in early, you know, junior year, so they can start interning over the summers, learn the company, and then come and join us as you know, members of the team once they graduate. You know, if I look at college costs and I look at you know, the need for talent, I think there's an opportunity here. You know, you've got students coming out with huge debt and you've got companies dying for talent. There's probably a market that can be created here where we're able to, you know, help each other. Yeah. And finding talent early, helping alleviate some of that debt from some of these young, talented people coming out of school, while at the same time securing the future of the talent that these companies need. It's definitely a huge opportunity for people who are in that space. And I think, and not to be Debbie Downer by any measure, but like, which that's not graduating enough engineers, people with technical degrees, it's just, you know, and it is, it is a pathway to success, right? I mean, when I started, I think I was like 37 grand a year. Now that was 96. I was killing it. Everybody's been envious of me. It was fantastic. But I mean, like, think about it now, like average starting salary coming out of school is going to be 80. 90, some cases more, depending upon your background in the school. I mean, you're, you're talking about making $100,000 as a, a 21, 22-year-old. That's, yeah. you know, I feel blessed that this industry works for me. You know what I mean? Because it's it's a tremendous way like to be successful. There's just so much opportunity for growth. So yeah. So what do you think we need to do to get more people to be interested in, in these roles and these, in these jobs? You know, I think part of it is we've got to offer the right incentives. What I've seen in just the interviews that I've had and you know, what I've heard from my teams as they're interviewing, people aren't just in it for the paycheck, mm-hmm. right? Right. Some of it is some of these opportunities and benefits, like being able to work virtually. You know, Given the opportunity, they put that pretty high on their list of needs. I think the other thing is they want to be involved, especially in the tech sector, with cool, innovative new technologies. 
you know, I hear people quite often asking, you know, what's the opportunity to get involved in cloud, you know, cloud architecture, cloud security, these areas are cutting edge and they know it. And they, you know, I've never met an engineer who doesn't want to know the new and latest thing. And so I think companies have to prove that they're on that trajectory and are willing to give those opportunities and that it actually serves the company's vision and strategy. And then I would say, likewise, it's got to be a cause that they can get behind. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, some companies have that embedded in their mission and their vision. Other companies demonstrate that through some of their philanthropic uh, organizations and, you know, how they you know, donate their time and money outside of work. But I think it's a balance of all of those. You know, geography has somewhat become less of an issue, especially for those companies virtual. Mm-hmm. You can stay at home, right? You can be in Wisconsin and working for a company in Indiana. You know, that's no longer the barrier. Now it's really what reason are you giving that hire to come to you? Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And you know, I think the the mistake a lot of leaders make is they think it's gotta be some grandiose purpose. Most businesses are not sexy, right? But you can have honor in what you do. Your job doesn't make you honorable, right? It's what you do and how you interact within your community. That's what we focus on is look, we're, we're here to help our clients grow as a consulting firm. And one of the things I learned a long time ago was I was trying to hire like the best tech talent we could find. And, and, you know, we got good at that. And then we had some real challenges with retention because really what people love about working for our organization is that we're helping other people solve their problems. And that's a different personality type. And so we, we started looking more for people who were in service groups and people who actually liked and technology was the avenue by which they got to solve you know, scratch that itch of who they are as a person, you know, that they wanted to solve and help other people and that they didn't need to be on center stage. And, and we've created a culture around that where we call it being a humble hero, mm. right? Like you're, you're not going to be on the stage. You're not getting the spotlight, but we're going to do some amazing things and we're going to help people accomplish their goals. And I think that's enough. It doesn't, you know, there's too often it's like, oh, we're going to change the world. It's like, how about I just change my neighborhood? Right? How would I just be a good member of my community? I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. You know, I, I would say similar to what you just said. Right, that people want to be on a winning team. Right, I've never met anyone who doesn't. Right, and being on a winning team is great. Being on a winning team with the heart is even better. Yeah, and I think that's where you start to find the sweet spot, especially in the job market today, is where you can merge those two. Mike, out of curiosity with your military background, do you feel like you have a different approach when you're bringing on military veterans versus non-military? I can talk the talk, or at least I used to be able to. I try and recall it, um, given my aging memory. But, you know, I think what I would say is, you know, when I interview veterans, they can give me their military background. You don't have to translate it for me. Don't try and, you know, call yourself a you know manager when you were a fire team lead right? You were a fire team leader. Got it. I understand what that means. I actually think where they are extremely useful today and where I try and, you know, help and try and look for that talent is where you have this much kind of transformational change. You know, it cracks me up a little bit. A lot of people in the armed forces get tagged as kind of immobile and, you know, fixated. It couldn't be further from the truth. If anything, they are used to adapting and overcoming. Yeah. And they tend to be able to operate with limited information and fuzzy conditions and be very comfortable. And that tends to be where we are today. You know, COVID aside, just looking ahead, I mean, economic conditions, workforce conditions, international, you know, all of these coming together, it couldn't be more fuzzy. 
but we got to keep pushing forward, right? Patrick, to your point, you know, we got to take that step. We can't just wait because the world's changing and we got to keep pace. And just a follow up, you know, most of us don't necessarily have that military background. We can't translate and understand what those roles truly were. So I guess what advice might you have for our listeners who are trying to attract and, and retain military talent if they don't speak the language, so to say? I would say in terms of attracting, I have several friends who are, you know, exiting the military after 20 plus years, you know, dating myself a bit, but you know, my classmates are leaving the military now and you know, they ask questions all the time about, you know, where what's the job market like? Will it be hard to find a job? And I tell them no, you know, because the fact of the matter is these are accomplished leaders and they've got a skill set that I think most companies overlook and aren't willing or aren't able to train. And that is making very clear guidance, communicating in simple terms, and then following up and getting it done. That's what they can do. And I think to attract them, the biggest thing you can do is make it public, right? I mean, these, these men and women are leaving the armed forces and looking for opportunities. But I would say the other piece to attract them is it's got to be more than a paycheck, right? These people didn't join the armed forces for the paycheck, I assure you, right? They have an altruistic you know, bent to what they're looking for. And the more that, like we said before, you can show them winning with a heart, I think the better you will, you'll be in attracting them and the better you'll be in retaining them. So it sounds like if you want to attract the next generation, you want to attract military, you want to attract from other pools of talent that didn't really get the access that they, you know, in the past have, sounds like the answer is figure out where your heart is and, and stick it out there. I think so. And also be willing to figure out what you're willing to train, right? Because I mean, if you found the perfect candidate, you're better than me. Uh, no, you're, you're fooled. <laughs> yes, you're, you're fooled, typically. <laughs> We've all lied on a resume. I could tell you a whole story about a forklift, but we're not going to get into it today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, save that one. I want to hear that. But you know, at the end of the day, typically everyone you hire has some, some gap that you're willing to train or overcome. I would say in the military side, it's not going to be in the leadership category, right? It might be on the technical, it might be in the terminology, or it might be in the uh, the market, but that's all trainable and learnable skills in my mind. The leadership is the hardest part. Yeah. And, and you're going to get 20 plus years in this, you know, in some of my friends' cases of trained, certified, tested leaders. To me, that's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree 100% more than that. And the odd part is, I just say I can't agree more than 100%. Like, well, what an <laughs> idiot that sounds like. We're definitely editing that bullshit out. But I just read something the other day uh, from the DevOps research community, and they were talking about where people are investing in training. And leadership was like 3%. And I'm like, you are all doing it wrong, right? Like the technology is going to change in 18 months. Leadership hasn't changed in what, 100,000 years, right? Get that operating system working and then you don't need to worry so much about the technology. Yeah, I, mean, I think it goes back to what we talked about at the top of the, the podcast, right? It's the people first, then process, then technology. If you don't have the right people and you don't have the right process, your technology won't get you there. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a perfect place to wrap up this podcast. Not that I think we couldn't go for another like 48 days straight, but <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining us today. Awesome. Congratulations on all your success. Excited to see what's going to come next. And uh, we're, we, we wanted to come. Definitely want you to be back on the podcast again. 
I appreciate that. I'm happy to. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Awesome. So we also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.